and Sanctuary with Emma Newman. Hello my lovelies. Oh, it's awful out there, isn't it? Let's have a nice cup of tea together and maybe a cheeky biscuit or three and have a little catch up. Well, I'm having a cup of tea. You can have whatever you like, of course, as long as it makes you happy. If it pleases you, feel free to imagine that we're sitting on plump cushions inside a cosy blanket fort. It's been strung between large chairs, so there's ample headroom once you're sitting down, but not too much, because everyone knows that the blanket fort needs to have a low enough ceiling to feel as safe as possible. There is the soft glow of a warm LED light in the shape of a mushroom to illuminate the tea set and the plate of biscuits, and of course, several large and very cuddly teddy bears. They're excellent listeners and always happy to be squeezed tight when needed. That particularly fine bear over there, the one with the red bow tie, that one's called Bernard. You know, my dad always used to say when I was little, you know where you are with a burr. I think that's more evidence for why my dad is so great, actually. (laughs) I'm still filled with the absolutely heady glow created by the response to episode one of this podcast. And to everyone that has spread the word about it, who's left comments, and those of you who have supported me on Patreon, thank you so much. I'm really relieved that you like this. (laughs) If this is your first time here... I'm going to talk to you about things that have made me happy, things that have given me hope, and then a little bit about what I've been up to lately. There are five segments in all, and they're unscripted. I have like little bullet point notes here. Above all else, what I want to do is to create a sanctuary, just for a little while, for you and I, so that we can restore ourselves because goodness knows we all need it. Part one, a delightful real world experience. I want to talk about the absolute love I have for (laughs) a really niche thing in the, (laughs) in the grand scheme of things. It's the way that people have repurposed old red telephone boxes. The ones that used to actually have telephones in them. And I'm old enough that I can remember that. I can remember red phone boxes with actual working telephones in them that you used when you were out and about and needed to call somebody, obviously, before the age of mobile phones. There used to be tens of thousands of them. And then when they were being phased out, people were suddenly really upset about this. They didn't want to let them go because the design is so iconic and they're such an important part of our kind of street furniture. That means that in lots of places, um, either people own them privately, like bought them because a lot of them were sold off. I think some of them were sold off for like a pound at one point. Damn it. I wish I'd known about that. I was probably just too young at the time. And in other places, parish councils have bought them to keep them in the community. And they've been repurposed to be used in different ways because the telephones were still disconnected. The one that I walk past very frequently has been turned into a toy library for local people. 
So people leave toys and children's books that their children have grown out of in the red telephone box. And whatever's in the box is free to be taken away by other families. And I love this. I love this so much. Every time I walk past it, it makes me so happy. The other thing I really love about this particular repurposed toy box near where I live is that there's always seasonal children's art displayed. <laughs> it's so adorable. <laughs> and it kind of helps to mark the passage of time, which has been strangely useful over the last few years. And I just noticed when I went out for a walk the other day that uh, there are loads of like autumn leaves that have either been drawn or actual autumn leaves that have been picked and decorated. And I don't know who does it. I don't know if it's like a local playgroup that organises it or a local school or if it's just something that a bunch of parents decided to get together and do. Whoever's responsible for it, I love them. There's another one that's uh, near to my friend um, who lives up in Stroud and uh, I love going to visit them. I, I visit them every week and near where they live, they have a red telephone box that's been turned into a mini library. Um, and apparently there was one in Cambridgeshire that was turned into a pub just for one night <laughs> um, for a village fete. Um, and it was all part of this campaign because the, the village's actual pub had been closed down and they were campaigning for it to be saved. And they actually got a license to dispense alcohol from this phone box pub just for one one day. <laughs> it's just absolutely crazy. Um, but yeah, people have been repurposing these all over the country. Some have been used for planters, art displays. There have even been some which have been turned into like little cafes. I mean, that's not obviously where people actually sit to have coffee, but where the drinks are sold from. One has been made into it. I, sh I should think there's probably more than one, but I know that definitely one of them has been made into a museum. And there are quite a few now which have got um, defibrillators in them in case someone in the community has a heart attack. I, I just love this so much. The other thing that's lovely is that when I was making my bullet points of things I wanted to talk about, I just out of curiosity looked up red telephone boxes because I thought, I wonder how many there were. And there were apparently 96,000. I didn't write that down, but that's stuck in my head now. At one point, there were 96,000 red telephone boxes. But there were different types because the designs changed over time. And I stumbled across this website that lovingly details each type and what its name was. And I love that. I love it when when you kind of discover whole worlds of specialist niche interest that people bestow so much love and time on. It always makes me think of whenever you lift a rock and there's an entire ecosystem of like bugs and, and a whole life going on underneath this rock that you were completely un un unaware of. That's what it feels like. So yes, red telephone boxes. The other thing that I remember about red telephone boxes, if you were lucky enough to have one that hadn't been recently used as a urinal, was that there was a very particular smell of the metal. A very particular smell of the metal and... Um, I don't know. I don't know what it was. Something, I, I was going to say, and the cold, but cold doesn't necessarily smell. But yeah, there was a, a definite um, miasma <laughs> that used to gather in these foam boxes that, um, yeah, was really evocative. So hooray for repurposing old red foam boxes 
It's just the kind of eccentric British stuff that I like. There's a lot of stuff that I could leave out when it comes to being British, but repurposing of red telephone boxes, yes. For community projects, yes. More of this sort of thing. Part two, a delightful creative work. I want to gush at you about the movie Everything Everywhere All at Once, starring Michelle Yeoh. It was written and directed by Daniel Kwan and Daniel Scheinert. Have I pronounced that right? I hope so. But they're known as the Daniels. Oh my life, I could talk about this film for hours. It's it's such a rich experience. It's unlike anything I've ever seen before. And even though it's a multiverse-based movie, and I've seen lots of takes on the multiverse in recent years, it feels completely fresh. It's absurd. It's hilarious. The fight sequences are some of the most creative and bizarre I have ever seen. (laughs) I'm just thinking of a few things that happen and my goodness, they're incredible. The cast are magnificent. It's relatively new, so I'm not going to spoil it. All I'm going to say is that if you get the opportunity to see it and you haven't already, do. It's it's beautiful. It's funny. It's, it's wildly entertaining. And one of the things I really loved about it is that it centres a mother and daughter relationship in a very, very interesting way. And that feels like a rarity in films. You know, I feel like there have been 11 billion movies about sons struggling to connect with distant fathers, but... Not so many about mother and daughter relationships, unless it's in a horror movie. Hmm. The other thing that I really love about this movie was that it was shot on a really small budget relative to most movies. And the directors are such clever and creative people. And they did a lot of the effects as actual practical effects, which I'm a huge fan of because I find that CGI ages really badly apart from a few rare exceptions. The practical effects used in this movie in combination with really, really smart, low-budget, kind of like DIY uh, visual effects are just incredible. They had, I think it was like a team of seven people or something that did the the visual effects and they were all from like YouTube. They, they learned how to do it all on YouTube. It was just, <laughs> it was just an amazing feat. And one of the reasons why the Daniels are so good at creating incredibly brilliant stuff on a low budget is because they've got a long history of um, making music videos, which are incredibly low budget. And if you go online, you can find a list um, very easily. And I really do recommend that after watching Everything Everywhere All at Once, you go and find the music videos they've directed because you can see the DNA of the film style in those videos. And they are, they're very funny. They're very creative. There's one in particular that I love and it's for a song called Houdini by Foster the People. And you know how there are loads of music videos which are just filming the band, performing the song? I, I find those really boring. I know why they do it. It's a very easy thing to make a music video about fans want to see the band performing that's fair enough and sometimes there's a live performance and you get the energy of the live performance but I much prefer music videos that are really really creative that are are kind of like a little mini art form in themselves Um, and this this video falls into that category for me 
It's a brilliant take on the boring band performs their song in the music video. <laughs> because in about the first 10 seconds of the video, the band are killed <laughs> during an accident in a rehearsal. <laughs> like some of the gantry above them, the lighting gantry falls on them and kills them. And the video is about how the music company ensures that the live show that they were rehearsing for can still go on. Just just go and watch it. Houdini by Foster the People. Um, it's on YouTube. Uh, go watch the music video. It's great. And that was directed by the Daniels. Part three. Something that gives me hope. If you've read Planetfall, you know I've been interested in 3D printing for a long time. And 3D printed houses have been around for a few years now, but lots of them have used concrete or form of concrete. And I'm not a huge fan of that as a building material, quite frankly. So I was really, really excited to discover a company in Italy called Wasp. And they are a really innovative 3D printing company. They've been working for years on using 3D printing technology to print in different materials, not just plastic or resin. Um, and some of the most beautiful work they've done is perfecting the ability to 3D print ceramics. So they've created incredibly um, futuristic looking, very, very beautiful printed ceramic vases and things to showcase the technology because they create the actual printers. The thing that I was very excited to discover is that they've created a huge 3D printer called the Crane Wasp, which is designed to 3D print houses from material excavated at site, namely the dirt in the ground where you want to print your house. And the test one that they created at their research site excavated the soil printed the house using that soil mixed with, so they have to make sure that it's got clay, soil, um, sorry, clay, dirt, straw, and printed the house from what they dug out of the ground. And then the, the hole left by that excavation was turned into a pond and the water that ran off the roof went into the pond and was part of a water filtration, water recapturing system. It was just incredible. I love it so much. I'm really excited more widely than this about the fact that so many companies are exploring being able to build with natural materials in a way that is easy and efficient. I'm very passionate about natural building and seeing companies like this where they have massively, massively reduced the impact of printing a house by literally using the materials that are either on the site or very close by, like locally produced straw, is where we need to be going as far as I'm concerned. And it, it just fills me with so much hope that people are really taking this seriously now. They have um, developed like a, a package system which can be fitted into a shipping container which contains this huge crane 3D printer for printing a house, but also other bits of equipment that can go with it. One bit of equipment in this solution uh, is effectively a shredder which enables you to break up anything that you may have um, demolished on the site. There are probably restrictions on what you can use in it but 
yeah, materials that you have taken from demolition and break it up and put it through the extruder for the, the 3D printer. So it's not just hyper-local sourced materials, it's also finding a way to recycle things that are found on site as well. I think they're doing fantastic work. I'll put a link to their site in the show description um, on the Tea and Sanctuary website. It's just great. I love it. I know that lots of people might think, well, what's the use of building something out of mud and straw if you live in a wet climate? This is basically cob. They're 3D printing cob, which is a building material that's been used for hundreds of years in the UK, thousands of years elsewhere as well. I say hundreds of years in the UK in terms of houses that are still standing, literally hundreds of years old. We have a very wet climate at certain times of year. And as long as you have a really good roof and you have the cob starting off the ground, if you have a good foundation with good drainage and then a foot or two of stones and then you build the cob above that so that when the rainwater comes down, it doesn't splash onto the cob as much. It can last for literally hundreds of years. So, yeah, these are genuine solutions that I think can be used in all climates with the correct adaptations. Part four, adventures in surviving late stage capitalism as a writer. So you may have noticed if you listened to episode one that the sound quality has improved. One of the things that I've done this week is I've completely rearranged the workspace in my office so that I've got a more dedicated recording space and it's enabled me to put up the acoustic panels that I made to actually mount them on the wall. When I was recording before, I was literally (laughs) propping them up on a table in this very precarious um, situation just because I was trying to squeeze into a, a bad space in my very full office. My poor office has to deal with my writing work, now regular podcasting, all of my LARP crafting, dressmaking, art. There's a lot of stuff going on in this room and it just, it wasn't working. So I completely rearranged it. I'm now in a very cosy recording booth, which is actually has a very good feel to it. It feels a bit like a blanket fort because I've hung up velvet curtains around me to deaden the sound, etc, etc. And anyway, part of this was that I wanted to improve the sound quality and rearranging everything and and deadening the, the space better helped. I had this, I got this new microphone relatively recently and I was a little bit disappointed with how it sounded and I, I thought that was because of the the acoustics in the room. I improved them and it improved the sound. But I um I still wasn't happy with it. And <laughs> when I got this mic and preamp, I looked everywhere for instructions on how to use it. And I mean Billy and Jane do home recording level instructions for the technology. And I think they just assumed that it was only professionals that would be buying this setup (laughs) to, to use because there wasn't a simple guide to exactly what the dials did. So I spent ages fiddling around with them, trying to get the settings to sound as good as I could. 
but I found that I was having to amplify the sound in post-recording editing, which is fine. I know how to do that. One of the things that years of recording interviews for T and Jeopardy in the past taught me was how to edit audio and make it sound better because different people had different microphone setups, etc., etc. So it was it was fine, but I knew it could be better. Anyway, for some reason, I just thought I'd do another search on trying to find some help on this particular setup. And hallelujah, I found this video on YouTube, which really was a 101 guide to what all of the buttons do. It really helped me to understand it. I could make adjustments to my settings, which I think have had a really good impact. <laughs> and I'm laughing <laughs> because the other thing that I learned in this video <laughs> is that for weeks I've had my microphone backwards. <laughs> to me, condenser mics are not omnidirectional, which my old mic was. It didn't matter which way round my old mic went. So it didn't even occur to me with this one. Oh, I'm such a muffin. But yes, there's a little gold dot on the front to show you which direction the microphone's front is so that you can speak into it. And all my life, it's made such a difference. It means I'm not going to have to artificially amplify all of my recordings. And I think that it just sounds, it's the tone sounds warmer because, you know, the microphone isn't pointing into an acoustic panel. It's actually facing me. Oh, my life. Oh, just don't tell anyone, OK? Don't tell anyone I was that much of a muffin. <laughs> but the most important thing is, is that it sounds so much better because the other reason I wanted to improve the sound quality wasn't just for this podcast. It's also because I am now, because I've sorted this out, recording the audiobook version of the Planetfall short story collection, and I wasn't happy with the quality before. So hooray, big progress has been made. Uh, another thing I've been doing is prepping for BristolCon, which is a one-day convention in Bristol that is going to be held at the end of the month. I think it's the 29th, and is my first convention in three years. Oh my goodness, I am so nervous. How do I do that again? In fairness, I am really looking forward to it because I have many friends who are going to be there that I haven't seen for literally years, and that will be lovely. But going out into convention land again just feels nerve-wracking. But I will I will handle it. It will be fine. In fact, it'll be more than fine. I know I will have a lovely day once I get there. Uh, and part of the prep for that is getting stuff together for an art show space that I've been given, which I'm very excited about. I have some sculptures that I've done. That makes it sound really fancy. It's I, I'm just I've just been messing around with clay and polymer clay in, in particular and have made some things. And I'm going to see if I can finish off a few pieces ready for the show. So yes, that's one of the things that I'm working on at the moment. I've, I'm really struggling to talk about it because I feel like I have fooled around with art stuff and accidentally started to sell it. And that I haven't kind of, that I'm not qualified to talk about myself as an artist. I know that sounds ridiculous. 
But I do genuinely feel that I've just been messing around, but people have liked the stuff I've made and so that's great. But yeah, I, I need to do some work on talking about it, obviously. One of my patrons asked if I could explain how commissioned novels work, because in episode one I mentioned that I had written a novel that was commissioned. Um, so I can tell you about how it worked for me. I'm sure that there are dozens of ways that this is done in the wider publishing world, because that's just the way of things. But for me, I was commissioned to write short stories for the first time several years ago, and that works in that uh, if somebody is putting together an anthology which has a particular theme, if they're a publisher, they will get in touch with writers and ask if they want to write a story for that particular anthology. And I've done that for Aberdeen Books on several occasions. And in fact, one of the stories that I was commissioned to write for an anthology won a Best Short Story Award from the British Fantasy Society a few years ago now. It's a story called A Woman's Place. And that was part of an anthology called um, 221 Baker Streets. And I really enjoyed that project. And being commissioned to write a novel was pretty much a, a very similar experience. Um, a publisher had an idea for a thing that they wanted to do. They got in touch, asked if I would be interested. I really liked the concept. I thought it would be a lot of fun. And so I said yes. And then my agent sorted out the contract with them. This is obviously something that's very unlikely if you're unpublished or um, very, 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 very early on in a writing career, I guess. But because I've had several novels published now, I guess they could be quite confident that I would be able to deliver a book. And that's that's how it worked. And then I had my briefing from them on the kind of world that they wanted it to be set in. And then I was just left alone to go and come up with some ideas. I wrote up uh, an outline of what I, how I was going to approach the brief, which they signed off. And then I went away and wrote, wrote the book. And that's it, really. It's not very exciting when you talk about it like that. <laughs> it was, yeah, very, very straightforward. Uh, so that's how, how that worked for me. It may be different if you're writing for um, something which is like a really big intellectual property like Star Wars or Star Trek or something like that. There may be different. It may not. I don't know, because I have not done anything in connection with IP like that. So there we go. Part five. Delicious nerdery. At the end of the month, I'll be taking part in a really interesting project and it's being run by a very smart friend of mine called Francesca. She's creating an installation at the 1830 Warehouse, which is part of the Manchester Science and Industry Museum. And this is an interactive experience, which is part of the upcoming Manchester Science Festival. And she put out a call for fellow LARPers who would like to help out and take part. And... I volunteered. It's a combination of LARP and environmental science education with a particular emphasis on climate change and uh, solutions and uh, ways to change the way we live to be more environmentally friendly beyond just the, the, 
the usual use less plastic and recycle more, you know, more in-depth stuff than that. This installation is basically uh, the the conceit is that the public can walk into time bubbles that have been created by scientists from the year 2122. We play the scientists from the future and we're there to kind of talk to people from the present day and find out about how people live now, talk about how we live in the future and encourage an exchange of ideas and encouraging people to imagine a different future or a potential future, I should say. When I say different future, I mean a different future to the doom and gloom. Because this is one of the things I'm really excited about, about Francesca's project, is that her vision of the future for this installation is really positive. And it's designed to help people to imagine what a world where technology and nature are fully integrated with people's lives, what that will look like. This is very much the sort of thing that I'm exploring in the utopian novel that I'm writing at the moment. We have very compatible ideas about (laughs) uh, imagining a future which is uh, much more positive, kind of much more in line with solar punk values. So, yeah, this is a really interesting project because as a LARPer, when I go and LARP, it is for a particular game in a setting, in a location where everybody is participating actively in the LARP. This is the first time I've done anything where it's an intersection between the LARP and the general public. And, you know, I'm not going to lie, that makes me really nervous. But I'm hoping that people will find it interesting and it'll be a different way to engage with the subject matter. And we'll be encouraging them to do things like interactive activities as part of the installation. Um, And I'm hoping it'll be a lot of fun. I'm I'm also, I, I admit, I am very nervous about it. But, you know, I'm nervous about everything. So, you know, what difference does it make? (laughs) If I have to leave the house, I get nervous, so it doesn't matter. Over the next week or so, I'm going to be sorting out my costume and making notes ready for the shifts that I'll be doing, uh, because I think it runs for 10 days in total, and I'm helping for two days and I'm on standby for a third day. Yeah, even though I'm nervous, it's such an interesting and exciting project that I above all else, feel very lucky to be able to take part. I also feel really lucky that I've got such interesting and creative friends. At the end of uh, episode one, I think I talked about how there are lots of people that are doing really good things out there in the world, and this just feels like another example of that. Somebody who is trying to find different ways to communicate important issues to people and to make it fun to make it interesting. That's great. I love it. And I'm very lucky to be able to be taking part in that. Is there something that gives you hope, that lifts your spirits? Tell me about it. Not just for, you know, me, but (laughs) I can share it with other people here. Last week I had a lovely message from Wendy, who told me about a non-profit society in Canada called Tiny Kittens. And they have a website which has a live stream of the cats and kittens in their care. So if watching kittens play is something that soothes you, you can find that at tinykittens.com. You've just listened to an episode of Tea and Sanctuary. If you enjoyed the show and would like to be an absolute bless puppet, you can help to keep the teapot full by becoming a patron at www.patreon.com 
forward slash Emma Newman. This episode was brought to you by three cups of tea, two custard tarts, and one silent wish made beneath a full moon. Go forth, my rose petals, and be lovely to each other.